Hello, this is Jennifer, and this is my new podcast. It's called Medical Revolution in Progress. So I don't have a fancy intro yet or anything, but I hope you'll stick around to listen to some of the topics that I wanted to bring up I think are important. One of the um, reasons why I started to really not enjoy my job as much was when COVID hit, and I think that's the the case for a lot of, you know, medical providers, doctors, nurses, PAs, NPs, all these people um, that were my colleagues, you know, when COVID hit, if you were already sort of emotionally drained, it only magnified it, on top of which COVID was a political issue from the start. And that made things difficult because in order to practice medicine, I always consider first do no harm. And the way that I treated patients and thought about new medicines, vaccines, or anything else did not change when COVID started. But for some reason, any of the questions that I might have, any of the letters that I write to the Department of Public Health in the state I was in, uh, really just caused more problems for me. So it was really a time where I did a lot of soul searching and, you know, I still haven't really come out of that. And I don't believe that I'm the only person um, that experienced this in the medical field. So this podcast is really just about an insider's view of the medical system after working in it for more than 20 years. And I think, uh, you know, I'm going to highlight some things that I think are obviously a problem, tell some personal stories, and, you know, discuss solutions too, because I don't think it's a good idea to just complain and, and, um, and criticize without offering solutions. So I'll try to do that as much as possible. But really, the other piece here is me discussing issues that I think as a patient, many people aren't aware of. And so it's really just me educating people who could potentially be patients or who are patients. I think a lot is unknown. And so I think it'd be helpful for me for me to do this. And I hope it I hope it is. So let's just start with uh, one of the things that I think is is kind of interesting. So in terms of accountability for for hospitals and things like that, there's really um, it, medicine like any other any other I guess scientific endeavor is something that's difficult to change. Uh, you know we can just think about Galileo and you know what happened to him when he decided that the um, the earth and the sun wasn't what everybody else thought it was. Now, that wasn't medicine, but through the years, there have been medical uh, people who are canceled. There's a ton of them that's been recently canceled, but even prior to COVID, there were a ton of people um, that got canceled. And often these people were canceled um, not because they were poor physicians or researchers, but because what they were saying was so different than what everyone else in the medical community thought. 
that they were ostracized. I mean, this this is just something we see in history and over and over again. So the brave people that speak up first generally have their heads cut off or ostracized or lose their job or their license and those kind of things, which makes them all the braver because they know that that's what's going to happen. Although sometimes they don't, fortunately. I don't think Andrew Wakefield knew what was going to hit him. Regardless, this is how this is how medicine is. And so um, when you kind of beat to your own drum, it does make things difficult. Medicine used to be a lot different. When I first started, it was at the end of the era where, you know, doctors still were able to have mom and pop shops. You could call your doctor. He was your only doctor. He'd been there for 20 years or 30 years, and he's treating all your parents and your family members, and he knows your name and all these things. Um, I actually started um, my first year after graduation um, in a doctor's office like that. It was a father's son. Unfortunately, those are pretty much gone like your local pharmacy. They've been sucked up into uh, managed care systems and hospitals. And this is where a lot of the trouble started. And, you know, doctors lost their autonomy to practice to the point where, you know, when you work in an emergency room or if you even are a primary care doctor, part of a larger group, they will give you guidelines as to what's acceptable to prescribe for, say, strep throat or a urinary tract infection. And you have to follow those guidelines. Even Obviously, they're, they're including opiates in there now, too, ever since the OxyContin fiasco. Regardless, if you don't follow these guidelines, you will get, you will not reprimanded, but you'll get points taken off. And this goes towards your yearly review. So basically, they're telling you, if this person has a sore throat, you have to swab their throat. You have to you know, if it, if it's positive, then you have to prescribe uh, penicillin at this, this dose for these many days. The next acceptable, if they're allergic, is X, Y, and Z. But this, I've worked in places like this. I've worked in places like this. And so where, where does anything come in? I mean, a robot can do that. And honestly, I think they'll have robots doing that soon. But regardless, um, it takes away all the autonomy of the physician really any clinical decision-making and any experience that you may have with the patient or the condition they're presenting with. And so, you know, that's how medicine is for every place I've worked in the past, I'd say, 10 years. Uh, and it's it's really unfortunate. It takes a lot of the joy out of, of practicing. And then what do you have left? Well, the reason you went into medicine, because you want to help people, because you care for people, because you have you know, a skill set that allows you to go to a training program and acquire these skills. But the bottom line is you want to help people. And I loved helping people. Loved only because then what happens is you are told that you have quotas to meet. So just like a cop has to meet certain quotas, you know, at the end of the month for speeding tickets, doctors and physician assistants and MPs and, and Generally, that's the, they have quotas to make every day. How many patients do they need to see? If it's an urgent care, it's it it's 15 minute appointments. If you're lucky, your doctor schedules every 20 minute appointment. Now I'm talking about primary care, internal medicine, urgent care. I'm not talking about specialists. I don't know how they how they set up their schedules. 
but I'm talking about the majority of people that most people are going to see at some point. Emergency rooms, I'm not talking about those either. I'm sure there are quotas, but um, when I was there, they weren't, I wasn't aware of what they were. So now, you know, the medical person, medical provider comes in and they see a schedule and if it's low, then it's going to be a problem for them come, come payment time. And it's also going to be a problem when they're, you know, called in to talk to their office manager or administrator or whatever it is. I'm sure the higher up docs in the organization don't get the same sort of thing, but a lot of people get this sort of thing and it's demoralizing. I don't care what anyone says. You can't see a patient, get a history, do an exam, diagnose the patient in 15 minute time slots. You cannot do it. That's why doctors are always late. If you want to know why it's not because they want to make people upset. It's because they are fully booked 15 minute appointments or 20 minute appointments if you're lucky. And in 20 minutes, if someone comes in, no matter what it's for, you have to be finished so you can move on to the next patient. This creates a lot of stress. In addition, the notes that you have to complete and these sort of things. But th that's beside the point. This is, this is not humane. I understand there are much more inhumane ways of making a living. I'm not disputing that. But right now I'm just talking about medicine. And it's inhumane not only to the, the doctor to be put into that position. It's incredibly inhumane to the patient. Because you're on such a rush to make sure you stay on time so you can get out you know, at the end of the day before, say, 6 or 7 that immediately when you walk into the room, you're already, you know, sort of concerned with how long this visit is going to be instead of, I need to take care of this patient. Now, honestly, I got to the point where I, I stopped worrying about how long it would be. And I became, I fell behind by an hour, two hours at times. And then some other people might have to take a patient. But my, my premise for a very long time was that I'm going to go in there and I'm going to talk to the patient and treat the patient. I don't care how long it takes me. This is what, you know, this is what medicine is, but it's not the way that they, they allow it to happen anymore. So huge problem, huge burnout. And then the last place I worked was a, a health center, a community based health center, a federally uh, qualified I think they call it FQHC, a federally qualified healthcare system. And if you don't know what these are, these are healthcare systems that contract with the federal government so that they uh, will, will see patients who have no insurance and patients who have state insurance, also known as Medicaid, not to be confused with Medicare, which is for people over the age of 65 or or having a disability prior or at that age. So FQHCs, sorry, FQHC, yeah, the one that I worked at. At first I was really excited because after working in the emergency department, I thought, well, you know, I'm gonna miss this because in the emergency department, it, because it was a uh, level one trauma center, 
just saw everything you could possibly think of was allowed to be part of the team treating these patients, which was such a privilege and learned so much. Uh, I worked at the um, emergency department at Yale in New Haven. And that seven years was an incredible experience for me. I wouldn't trade it for anything. I felt like I went through a residency. I'm a physician assistant, and so we can jump, jump, you know, between different specialties. But just the the wealth of knowledge, the teamwork present, and it, it was it was a really good experience. So I enjoyed it, but after seven years, I was burned out. And I give credit to anybody who you know, people do this for their entire careers. It's incredible. Uh, that being said, I didn't want to go to primary care. I knew it would be too slow. So urgent care, I go to this urgent care at an FQHC. And I was excited because their motto was, you know, healthcare is a right and they treated everyone. And most of their patient population was either, um, not covered or had Medicaid. And so, I just felt like I would be doing doing the right thing and and getting being able to give back and also I get I get something from it because I feel privileged to treat people like this because I feel like I'm doing something worthy for humankind. Uh, I was very excited when I first started there and after a couple of months I started to get a little bit suspicious and then a little bit after that I'd say a year into it I was filled with contempt and uh, just I'll just give a few little tidbits about it that really bothered me and I think uh, people might understand why so because it's an FQHC their their whole you know structure and their whole marketing is about how they're they're helping um, people who you know would otherwise not be getting covered what I found out, um, which is just sort of interesting, and it has to do with one of the other reasons why healthcare costs are absolutely insane in this country with no reason. Uh, typically, when a Medicaid patient is treated in a private practice, you know, one of these hospital settings or some of the doctors that still had the mom and pops, um, you don't get reimbursed very much. It depends on the state and how they do it. But in the state I was in, you know, you'd get reimbursed maybe uh, $50, $60. If it was a new visit, you might get 100 Yes, people have to make money and doctors bill like this. Believe it or not, that's not a high fee um, for a typical visit. But we, we'll get into visits later. Regardless, that's how much you would get paid. Well, I found out, you know, I thought here these people are doing all this great stuff and they're, they're so wonderful and they're nonprofit. That's not true. They first of all, I shouldn't say it's not true, but it sure seemed as if they were making quite a bit of profit and expanding with really unnecessary things, if you ask me. Regardless, they um, I found out they were contracted with the, with the state I was in to make $168 per Medicaid visit. And that's not even a new patient. A new patient, I think, was 222 So even though like what what 50 60 percent of their their patients which were thousands in the number were medicaid patients they were not getting reimbursed 50 dollars or 60 dollars like primary care doctors do the ones that don't want to take any medicaid and that's why 
they were getting reimbursed almost double that, no matter what level visit it was. If it was a level one, two, three, four. So yeah, fours, you had to be careful with anyone when you bill a level four visit in a doctor's office. But so once I understood that, I started to see, okay, well, I mean, sure, they get good for them, but that doesn't make any sense in terms of how you provide more care to patients because they're only centered in one area. And yes, it has to be in a certain area, a low income area and that kind of thing. But it, it just shows how these things work. But what bothered me more than that, because that was just like, okay, that's how they run this, was the fear that was instilled in the patients that we had. Um, I was urgent care, and so in the beginning of the day, if I only had two or three patients, by the end of the day, it would be filled up to 30 patients. And they would sometimes even double book, although I was not happy about the schedule to begin with. I signed up for it. Uh, The problem was this. They had nursing triage, but when you called the nurse as a new mother whose baby is nine, ten weeks, let's make the baby first trimester. I mean, I'm sorry, first uh, the baby's three months, and the baby has a fever. Instead of the nurse asking the nurse triage questions, they immediately book them into into an appointment. So that mother very well could either be at work, the baby's with her family or someone else, uh, could be at home, but has to take a bus to get to the center or, um, has to drive, doesn't have, you know, doesn't have a car, can't get a bus or takes an Uber. I mean, there's so many things that come into this when you're dealing with a lower income population. And so, Instead of offering the mother guidance onto what to do about the fever, you know, asking questions, you know, um, is the baby eating? Is the baby drinking? You know, is the fever steady? Is it going up? Is it, I mean, and offering suggestions as to do this, this, and this, and then, you know, let us know if this happens. None of that is done. All that's done is you need to come into the doctor right, right away and need to see, see the doctor. And so... I don't like that at all. I think that's really a poor way to tr- you know, treat patients and to practice medicine. It's It doesn't allow the nurses to uh, use their wealth of knowledge and experience and skill set to help people. You might as well have a secretary doing that. Nothing is wrong with the secretary. But what I'm saying is it doesn't take any special medical training to schedule an appointment when a patient has any any number of really harmless symptoms that can be managed at home. The entire population, at least where I worked, was treated this way. And I know why they did that. It's because they want to get the reimbursement for the visit. They want to get the $168 for that visit. But what bothered me was that, what about the patient? And what about the anxiety you're instilling in a patient? And, and the cost of getting the, the patient coming here. That's not so cheap for everybody. And I saw this over and over and over again. And it was just, that's the culture of it. And no matter how many times I tried or, or a fellow or a colleague of mine tried, they didn't want to hear it. They don't want to hear it because it's going to cut in on their bottom line. 
So very frustrating. Um, and, you know, if you're a primary care doctor there, I was a PA, but if you're a primary care doctor, you, there's no difference. It's all, it's, it's, it's like that. That's why they have the urgent care. But, you know, if you're a primary care doctor and say you have a patient you've been treating for 10 years and they call up and they have X, Y, or Z that you know you can treat with this medicine, it's worked in the past, yada, yada, you're not allowed to do that there. They will not allow that. And so, again, the patient suffers and the doctor suffers. The doctor's hands are tied. He has no autonomy to treat someone as a human being with kindness and consideration and, and, and trying to help not just, you know, the actual issue, but the whole patient's condition. And then, you know, the patient is screwed because they have to come in. They know what they have. And even though they've seen you 20 times in the past 10 years for this same thing, they have to come in. That is absolutely terrible. And so I just, I can't practice like that. And I don't know how anybody, how anybody can. And I feel, I do know how people can, and I'm sorry. My resilience is not good enough to handle that. It's, um, it's not okay. So those are just a couple of scenarios to start with. Um, the other thing that they did, um, you know, they had Suboxone treatment there and they were trying so badly to get me and a colleague of mine to be, you know, credentialed for it. It's some kind of test you have to take and then you get the designation. I didn't want to do it. Why? Because Suboxone is not an easy medicine to prescribe. Um, it's not, you know, you can't just convert. If you convert it the wrong way, there can be a problem. Okay. People can overdose. And, uh, people who have opiate addiction need to be handled very skillfully. And I didn't feel like even if I took this training that I'm going to be comfortable prescribing this, this medication. Well, they just wanted us to do it. Why? Because they had a clinic there for Suboxone and, you know, they had, um, providers and they had psychiatrists and they had mental health therapists. And I'm all for all of that. But what I didn't like was the way it was really profit-driven. Once again, they were always like putting people in the schedule over booking. I'm so glad I never got that certification. I feel so badly for those people that were going there for help. Not only would they put a ton of people in the in the um, in the schedule, everyone they would get urines every time, and that's fine. Do a urine tox. You know, urine toxes can be expensive though. When you send out that toxicology to get that report, those are not cheap. Even, even if you want to say it's 20 or $30 reimbursement for each one, if they're doing 40 patients a day and 20 urines, right? So it, what's that two grand just from urine, just, just from urine. Okay. And so, um, The prop, the so okay, fine. Like, do the utox. A lot of treatment centers do utoxes, and then that, that's part of the trust gaining and that sort of thing. But here was my issue 
when the person came back positive for Oxycontin or heroin or what have you, they would continue to prescribe the Suboxone and they wouldn't, they wouldn't do anything differently. And so I, that, that also bothers me because I want people who have opiate addiction to get the right help more than, or as much as anyone. I've had friends pass away from opiate overdose. And so it's a real serious issue. And I don't like this kind of game where there you've got to do a urine every day and then no matter what it says, you continue to get your Suboxone. That's unethical to me. It's unethical. And then also trying to get other people to prescribe the Suboxone for new patients and things when that's a tricky situation. So I, I don't think that that's ethical either. And so that that's just one other issue I noticed while I was there. And I'm not going to go into more right now, but th- there's plenty more we can get into at some point. So just speaking of, you know, healthcare uh, costs, um, I think that, you know, the healthcare prices in this country are ridiculous. And if if you knew how they have to bill, it's even more, it's insane. Um, and it's complicated and it's varying all over the place. I think a lot of people have already figured out if you use your insurance for medication, it's more expensive than if you actually pay for it cash, let's say Walmart or Target. Even with some procedures. So there's there's this website I, I found called Health Healthcare Blue Book, kind of like Kelly Blue Book for cars, but this is for healthcare procedures. And you can put in your zip code and whatever procedure it is that you may need to have, colonoscopy, um, a breast biopsy, whatever whatever it may be, and they will tell you on this app what the fair value is. And what's exorbitantly high and they will break it down for you as to what the things are and if there are any providers in your area that are agreeing to provide this for a fair value then they will let you know about that as well but it's a really interesting app it's a really helpful app and it shows you the insane amount of um, difference in some like one person one place radiology place may charge $2,200 $2,200 for an MRI of your left knee or right knee. And then it, another place may charge $220. And so why is that? Why, why is that? That That's a problem, right? I don't know where the, the balance lies in terms of what it should be reimbursed. But for it to be that wildly different, there's a problem. And that, that there's something that needs to be looked into. So um, the website is really good. You should check it out. Uh, And just to sort of give an idea of what what you might find there. I ended up joining the app. They have an app on iPhone and probably Android. It's just Healthcare Blue Book and it's free. 
So I'm just going to look up um, MRI, abdominal MRI, no contrast. So it says right off the bat, the price varies anywhere from $371 to $2,478. And they say that a fair price would be $687. Do you see the difference in, in the price, though? I'd, I'd love to know what accounts for that. Now, it's not showing me any facilities in my area that um, participate in this um, program, but I can go to, um, it says fair price information, and they, they detail how they get the fair price. And then they also have a price finder request, and so they offer you to, to help maybe find somebody to get, get a fair price one and it may be further away from your home but it's a really helpful website and I think it's it's good for people to have this and they'll even tell you if it's cheaper to get it with your insurance or pay for it cash and then submit it for a deductible and then the last thing I want to talk about just for today uh, was this website called uh, leapfrog Leapfrog is a really interesting website. It's a way of grading hospitals, which takes away the uh, the slant, the bias, you know, that you, you're typically going to find. Uh, the reason I found it is because I was listening to a podcast a couple years back, and they were talking about this really serious issue that was going on at the University of North Carolina's pediatric cardiology, pediatric cardiatric surgeons and how in one day three of the uh, pediatric patients after cardiac surgery died in a matter of day or two three of them died and how devastating it was and this had sparked uh, um, apparently a a much needed investigation um, that had been put off for quite some time and so uh, what they found was you know, a lot of the people that um, were performing these surgeries were not very well trained. And nobody wanted to speak up. They had developed a culture in which, you know, mistakes weren't reviewed, um, criticisms weren't made, uh, and there was no accountability of outcome. And this was at one, what at one point was considered like a top cardiac pediatric surgery department. Um, it turns out the New York Times did a big series on this, and it, it's it's devastating for these parents that lost their children at what they thought was a good hospital. Uh, another hospital, Johns Hopkins Hospital, ended up having a similar issue. And um, they did a big revamping, and because of that New York Times article, um, people you know, there was some accountability made and some of these departments closed down. But the reason I'm bringing this up is because if you're a patient and your child needs cardiac surgery or your mother needs cardiac surgery or somebody else needs, I don't know, some sort of operation on their spine or, you know, whatever these things may be, how do you know if your if your hospital is good? How do you know if it's well, to UNC, they've been great for years, and then there's this whole secretive sort of 
cover over the fact that for the past several years, the doctors are, are not doing well and the mortality rates rising. How are you supposed to know that? That's scary, I thought to myself. And so that's what leapfrog is. I mean, leapfrog's free too. So I don't get any, I don't have any uh, deals with these people. I just think it's important for people. And I tell everybody about this um, because I think it's helpful. So when you go on to leapfrog, um, and I have, I have a, um, I have a link for both of these things that I'm talking about today, the, the healthcare, um, blue book, and then this leapfrog, which is like a grading system. You can put in, um, your zip code, and then it will give you the, a list of the hospitals in your area that complied with their requests. In addition, um, it will tell you any hospitals that denied giving them any information, which I think is very good to know. If the hospital doesn't want to let them know what their infectious disease rate is or what their post-op um, number of items left in the patient is and all these other things, or what their ratio is for nurses to patients in the ICU, if the hospital denies and doesn't want to let this group know that, well, I think that's important information because that seems to me they're they're hiding something and probably don't want to go there. Um, fortunately, some people don't have as many options. If you only have one or two hospitals within a 100-mile radius or one hospital or maybe even further than that, you're not going to have much options. But for people who are in these, these big cities or major metropolitan areas, Boston, New York, really anywhere, you're going to find some really fascinating information. And so I highly recommend that you do that. So that's really my podcast for today. I hope that uh, this has been helpful. I feel like I was all over the place, but I will be back um, with more information and some more sort of hidden behind the scenes um, hospital doctor info. And I hope everybody enjoyed this and peace out, guys.